Jesus Christ. He doesn't give much advice on what we might call playing it safe. In fact, Jesus calls us into some pretty risky obedience. The kind of obedience that can actually cause problems for you. Now, I'm not saying, neither is Jesus saying, you should go try to find some trouble to get into, but rather, you should so aim to please God that when it ruffles people's feathers, and by the way it will, then you're quite prepared to continue going on in such a way as to please God and not men. Would God want you to please your parents, honoring them? Of course, but not without qualifications. If your parents are hardened criminals and they want you to go to the grocery store and steal them some steaks so that they could eat steak that night, then you're going to have to choose to follow God and not your parents. Now, realize, please, that it's God's command that you honor your father and mother. But it is also God's command that you don't steal. So, what do you do in a case like that? Well, if you know God and you are able to discern his will because you are in communion and relationship with him through the covenant made by Jesus Christ where you receive the Holy Spirit, then God himself is going to be talking to you and driving you and giving you assistance, I'll say assistance, in your decision-making. And it should seem quite obvious that what you do is... You don't go steal the steaks from a grocery store. Not for the sake of your rock-hard criminal parents so that they can eat steak as opposed to something lesser, right? And somebody's going to be able to come up with other ethical angles on there. Well, what if your parents are starving and the only thing that they could nutritionally... Well, blah, blah, blah. The blah, blah, blah part of that is to say there's endless number of complications that can be thrown over it. The simple answers remain the simple answers. Obey God. Obey God. The example that I have given is, in fact, I think a, a silly one. The unfortunate truth is that things like that actually do happen. Things like that actually do happen. God is interested in you obeying him. Now, what's that going to do for your relationship with your parents if they want you to steal for them? Well, it's going to put you and your parents at odds with one another. Is God okay with you being at odds with your parents? Quite possibly. <laughs> if you are right with God and they are not, then... It's okay, because you are with God. You are making it your intention to please the Lord. 
Do you understand what it is that I'm saying when I talk about risky obedience? This is a really mild example. Does God want you to obey the government? Oh, sure, sure. You can find verses that will say that you should, in fact, obey the government. But without qualification? No, no. That is not right. You obey the government so long as the government is obeying God. If, however, you are a military man and you are called upon to shoot and kill several patriot Americans who are standing up and saying that America is going the wrong way, then as one who has taken the oath to protect the Constitution, you follow God, okay? You follow God. And in fact, uh, in that case, you could um, continue to stand with the Constitution, protecting the Constitution, and not someone just giving you orders. Nowhere in the Constitution are there provisions for the government just calling for the assassination of American citizens without trial. That, that's not, um, it's not good either by way of your Christianity or by way of your oath to the, uh, protect the Constitution or the people. So again, is that going to put you at odds if you tell your commanding officer, no, sir, I will not. That's going to get you perhaps in some hot water. Well, then, hot water it is. Follow God. Risky obedience. He really doesn't have much advice in terms of playing it safe. That's not really much of what the Christian message is. It's not much of what it is that Jesus himself was teaching. You're not going to find many passages that talk about playing it safe. No, Jesus will encourage you to take risks. Certain risks, not every kind of risk. Again, we can fall off our horse to the left, or we can fall off our horse to the right. The idea is to stay on the horse squarely. Let the covenant carry you, and don't get carried away. So, one of the places where we're going to see some pretty risky advice, and it's no mere advice, comes right at the beginning of the book of Matthew. Right after what we uh, have been calling the Christmas story. We've been looking, because of the time frame and the calendar, uh, because of the commemorative date chosen, December 25th, to commemorate the birth of Jesus, we've looked at Matthew chapter 1 and Matthew chapter 2. And in doing so, we've looked at how the story begins from the genealogy and the story of Jesus' conception in the virgin womb of Mary and the sort of suspicious and dark beginnings of the Christmas story. And we looked in chapter 2 at the way that the king of the Jews wanted to kill the king of the Jews and how it is that 
God made a provision and a way, and how it is that the king of the Jews killed his citizens. And here might be a fine example, a fine example that we will look at shortly. But what we see then is Herod, his jurisdiction only goes so far. And God's jurisdiction goes not only as far, but farther. Herod dies, and now Herod has to make an account directly to God as to why it is that he killed these children and made an attempt at killing the Son of God, Jesus, our Lord. But when we bring <clears throat> chapters 1 and 2 to a proper close, please note in the original scrolls, when Matthew the Evangelist wrote Matthew chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3 and so forth, there were not chapter mark and uh, um, versification. Okay, uh, so it may cause someone to stumble if when you're reading this, you are reading it as though chapter 1 and 2 were its own thing. And then chapter 3 was the beginning of something entirely else. That's not the case. In fact, I want you to go back and read the book of Matthew. And it would be nice if you can get a computer and maybe print off a good, solid translation version of the Bible. Not a paraphrase, please, thank you. But a good, sturdy translation of the Bible. I like the ESV. I like the NASB, I like the RSV, I like the King James, uh, fair enough. Uh, th these are some good, solid translations, but find a translation, right? And then print out minus the chapters and minus the verses, that is to say the numbers at the beginning of them. Just hold the text and read that and read as though the uh, story was all just one contiguous flowing story. It'll do you some good. But we are going to look at chapter 3. There's an obvious change. There's an obvious change. Um, but these are not um, uh, meaning to say that there's necessarily an, an end here and a... Uh, uh, like a full stop, the way that we sometimes treat chapters. Okay, chapters uh, can be very helpful, and so can the verse numbers. They can be very helpful in finding the address of a verse. But, um, you know, th that's what it was intended for, I think, originally, was an apparatus to help us locate one verse, um, and then you know, uh, be able to tell somebody else, hey, will you go to this verse? Will you go to this place? Will you read this particular statement? And then when you do, you have, uh, uh, you know, the, this exact portion in mind. Okay, I spent more time on that point than I ever cared to. Let's go back to what it is that I was saying, if you please. When Jesus wants to... Um, divide 
Uh, not Jesus. I'm so sorry. When Matthew, the evangelist, as he is writing the book, when he wants to divide the book down, he puts several um, obvious markers for where he thinks that there ought to be separation or division or, you know, the closing of one act and the beginning of the next act. If you look, just for example, at chapter 7, verse 28, you will see this statement. When Jesus had finished these words. When Jesus had finished these words. And it goes on to say, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority, and not as their scribes did. No. When Jesus had finished these words. Go to chapter 11 and verse 1. Chapter 11 and verse 1 says, When Jesus had finished giving instructions to his twelve disciples, he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. So again, when Jesus had finished, in this case, commanding or giving instructions to his twelve. So at chapter 7 verse 28, when Jesus had finished these words. What was it at chapter 11 verse 1? When Jesus had finished giving instructions. Then go to chapter 13 verse 53. Chapter 13 verse 53. When Jesus had finished these parables, he departed from there. When Jesus had finished these parables. Do you see the pattern? I, I really hope that you do. Chapter 7 verse 28 said, we already read it, when Jesus had finished these words. Chapter 13 now verse 53 says, when Jesus had finished these parables. Okay? Now, uh, for the sake of thoroughness, go to chapter 19 and verse 1. Chapter 19 and verse 1, where it says, When Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. Did you get that? When Jesus had finished these words, right? What did we see? At the chapter 7, verse 28, when Jesus had finished these words. All right? And one more, so that we can just, as I said, for the sake of thoroughness, go to chapter 26 and look at the first verse of chapter 26, where again we read, when Jesus had finished all these words... When Jesus had finished all these words, he said to his disciples, right? So when the evangelist Matthew wants to do something in the order of what we would think of as like chapter, verse, what have you, it, it may be better to think of it in terms of how we operate a play and its movements, one act, into the next act. When Matthew wants to do these things, the evangelist Matthew will um, make use of the when Jesus 
had finished these, right? And that, sometimes that lands at uh, a chapter right at the beginning. As for instance, Matthew chapter 11, verse 1, chapter 19, verse 1, and chapter 26, verse 1. But then there's two other times, chapter 7, verse 28, and chapter 13, verse 53, where it doesn't land at a chapter break. And that's okay. There's no crime there. Uh, just simply be aware of the whole apparatus of chapter and versification and know that precisely what it does not mean is that this is where the breaks must be in order for you to understand correctly. No, sometimes it's best to take those chapters and verses out, those numbers, and then simply read it like you would read any other book, really, uh, and just sort of read the thing. So, what I want to say here, and the reason why I've brought that up even, is to say, when we look at the quote-unquote Christmas story, chapter 1 and chapter 2, don't stop at the end of chapter 2 and say, well, there, that's that. And then I'll, you know, I'll pick up my reading tomorrow or something and I'll begin at chapter 3, verse 1. Um, that's, that's okay, but it's not the very best. What if you considered chapter 2 simply to flow on? You know, what if we put the uh, chapter 2... Uh, verse 24 instead of chapter 3, verse 1. And those of you who are looking at a Bible, you know what I mean. Chapter 2 has 23 verses in it. So what if we went and continued with chapter 2, verse 23, verse 24, verse 25, verse 26, verse 27, verse 28? What if we did it that way? It would maybe change some of our thinking. We would instead think this way. The way that the story begins is not only with the genealogy of Jesus and the virgin conception of Jesus and the move of one kingdom versus another kingdom as one king of the Jews persecutes another king of the Jews. What we would see is that the beginning of the Jesus story begins in earnest, with a call to repentance. A call to repentance. So, chapter 2, verse 24 says, now, for those of you who are paying close attention, you'll know that's actually chapter 3, verse 1. I hope you understand what it is when I'm saying this. I'm not inventing some new weirdo scheme. Okay, I just want you to read it as though it were a continuation of the story preceding it. Do not treat it like a ham and just chop off a hunk of it. Just continue. So, Jesus, he's been born. He went into Egypt. He came back from Egypt. And that is going to be deeply important here in just a moment because... Almost right away, there's going to be a connection back to what we saw in chapter 2. Alright? So, chapter 3, verse 1, 
or what I was, for the sake of a new concept, calling chapter 2, verse 24. Now, in those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Here's why. Because this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem was going out to him, and all Judea, and all the districts around the Jordan. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. All right. Well, we then see another move that uh, comes out of that. But that, that is enough for us to at least uh, begin with, let's say. So... Jesus has been born. The king has come. The true king of Egypt has come. He is chased, as it were, out of Bethlehem where he was born. Rather than being drawn into Jerusalem, I want you to... Uh, Take note, Jerusalem would be the city of the king. That's why the wise men went to Jerusalem. It's not that they followed the star uh, necessarily. The star took them to Jerusalem because, in fact, the star, they followed it to Bethlehem is where they followed the star to. But it just made sense to them, I'm sure. Well, this is where the political capital is. So, this must be the governmental seat. Where else would you find the newborn king? Must be Jerusalem, and so they went to Jerusalem. But if you were to draw, and don't worry about drawing the exact shape of Jerusalem, the exact shape of Israel, Judah, what have you, but just simply draw a circle, uh, you know, like a, a little tiny circle. And we say, this is Jerusalem right here. And then next to it, we're going to draw another circle to the south and to the west, not very far, just a couple miles, and we're just going to draw a little circle, okay? You're looking at it topographically, almost like a, a schematic map. So you have, here's a little circle, just to the south and to the west is going to be another little circle, that's where Bethlehem is, and then you're going to draw a big circle that includes both of those, Jerusalem in the center of this circle. Now, why did I have you do that? Because the little circle where Bethlehem is, you should be able to draw an arrow with a vector going straight towards Jerusalem. Jerusalem should be welcoming their king, bringing their king in. The king should be attracted to Jerusalem. And in fact, we do see that that's the case. Because when Jesus, uh, when Herod dies... Uh, if you, especially if you look in the book of Luke, by the way. Uh, but if you look in the book of Matthew, when Herod dies, then they're supposed to uh, go back to Israel. And then when they heard that Archelaus was reigning in the place uh, over Judea in place of his father Herod, 
He was afraid to go there. Then, after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee, okay, to go to Nazareth. What we see is Jesus should be welcomed into Jerusalem right away, right? The arrow should go straight from uh, Bethlehem to Jerusalem. It does not. The arrow actually goes the other direction. Jesus is being pushed away from the capital. The capital of Judea, the capital of Israel, Jerusalem, is actually pushing the king away so that he has to, the vector is the opposite direction, away from Jerusalem, away even from Bethlehem, away into Egypt. And it is not until Herod dies that Jesus is then, the vector is reversed, and Jesus is drawn back to Jerusalem. Now, if you read the book of Luke, you know that the parents were faithful to the law, and they took him there 40th day so that uh, the Numbers chapter 12 ceremonies for the newly birthed mother could be uh, cleansed. And so there were the doves that were sacrificed. Remember that whole story from the book of Luke? Anyhow, once he gets to Jerusalem, we're told that Joseph was afraid. They were afraid. No way we're staying here. Archelaus is reigning in Jerusalem over Judea. And they are again repelled to the north, which is where they came from before the census. So they are sent back away from Jerusalem, now this time to the north, going up to Galilee into the region of uh, Nazareth. Okay, so what we have then is, uh, the reason why I've gone through this, uh, part of the reason why I've gone through this, is to say, when we go to the words of the prophets, that first line from chapter 3, now in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. He's in the wilderness of Judea. Hmm, does that sound like any stories you may have heard before from the wilderness of Judea. Hmm. Oh, I know. The Exodus story of the people leaving Egypt. Do you remember the story from the book of Exodus about the Jews that left Egypt and went up into the wilderness and from the wilderness they then were able to go into the promised land, the Judea and Israel and the 12 tribes area, promised land. And to get there, they had to do what? They had to cross the Jordan River. And here is John the Baptist out in the wilderness of Judea. And he's out around, if you look at verse 5, then Jerusalem was going out to him and all Judea, and all the district around the Jordan. It's the Jordan River. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. Well, baptism is an exodus event. 
Baptism is an Exodus event. Now, we may not see the waters parting, okay? So you may not see the waters parting, but when uh, Israel, God's people, came out of Egypt, they went through the waters. And if you read 1 Corinthians, where Paul writes about this, he reckons baptism to be part of this exodus and going through the, uh, uh, through the waters of the exodus. So we have the people, as they are leaving um, Egypt, they're going through the waters. They go into the wilderness. They go through the waters to get to, through the Jordan, to get to Israel, the promised land. Okay, so let's continue building this concept here. The people who were in the promised land, what happened to them? They were pushed out. Some of them were killed, right? The warrior class uh, of the um, Hit, uh, the um, uh, Hivites and... Uh, uh, my goodness, there's seven nations, and for some reason my mind is blanking just now as to uh, who all these people were. The Jebusites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the... I can't remember them all. The Jiggerbites, the Skeeterbites. Scratch those last two. So, what we have then is the people who are the unfaithful. Do you remember that? The reason why God pushed out the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites and so on, the reason why God pushed them out is because they were wicked people. They had to leave that land. They were pushed out of the land. Well, in this case, what we see is that the Israelites themselves, the, the Jews, those who are in Judea, they are essentially being taken out of uh, Israel. They're being taken out of Judah, Judea, this area. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness, where the, a lot of people like to call it the wilderness wanderings. It's not as though they were just aimlessly wandering. They were being led by the Holy Spirit, the pillar of fire by night and the pillar of cloud by day, the uh, tabernacling presence. Now, in those days, John the Baptist, who is filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb, that is to say he's a prophet, not that he doesn't need either faith or grace to be saved. It's the wrong covenant, if you're thinking that. That's not right. Those days, John the Baptist, he's out in the wilderness, being led by the Holy Spirit, I can tell you, in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We will come back to that statement. For this is the one who's referred to by Isaiah the prophet. He is out there with the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Like I did how I did that. Technology changing my voice. Now John himself, this is intended to be reminiscent of the prophet Elijah. The prophet Elijah, if you go to Second Kings chapter 1, I'm headed there myself just now, Second Kings uh, chapter 
1 and verse 8, just as an example, not the full story, just as an example, uh, when talking about Elijah the Tishbite, chapter 1, verse 8 of Second Kings says uh, that in describing Elijah, they answered him, he was a hairy man with a leather girdle bound about his loins. He said, it's Elijah the Tishbite. Again, this is just one example. What is being done here with this description of John the Baptist is that he is being likened to Elijah. Okay? And in being likened to Elijah, this sort of ascetic appearance that uh, John the Baptist has um, is setting the picture in a certain way. Then Jerusalem, which is not a good place. Um, wouldn't it be nice to be able to say that Jerusalem was a nice place? It's not. Jerusalem's been getting it wrong. There are some people, though, who recognize that they've been getting it wrong, and they know that they have to follow God and not the current uh, ruling class or party. So, Jerusalem was going out to John the Baptist, and all Judea, and all the districts around the Jordan. They were being pushed across the river, out of the promised land. They were being pushed out of the promised land, okay, or drawn, if you will drawn out of the promised land, but fully out of the, the promised land. And then, <clears throat> by, way of, by way of the picture that's being made, um, then they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. Okay? So they are confessing, they are agreeing with God that they have sinned, that they have gone wrong. They are recognizing their need to change their own agenda and turn and do things differently. And then they will go back through the Jordan, as it were. They go out to the wilderness, talking with John, hear the message of John. Now they're going to go back into the Jordan. And from the Jordan, they're going to continue their trajectory from the wilderness across the Jordan into the promised land. It is very much like an old covenant, sort of a setup for a do-over. You guys know what a do-over is. You guys have played... Uh, sandlot football or baseball or something and at some point in time somebody says whoa hold on do over uh, something of a mulligan I know that's like these are not very theological terms but no really let's set the stage let's get everybody sort of back to ground zero let's let's uh, restart you know can we start the whole thing over again push the reset button get prepared make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. We are not yet in the new covenant. We are not yet there. Jesus has not yet died on the cross. He has not yet paid the price, the penalty, the ransom for his people, the believers. He has not yet saved people, according to the new covenant, in the way that is made through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And these people are not receiving the Holy Spirit by grace through faith. This is a preparatory work, an invitation to begin again so that they can be prepared for the new covenant. And 
this is John the Baptist is saying very similar things here when he says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Okay? So, again, let's take a look going from the beginning here. Now, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this, here's why. Here's why he came saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Because this is the one that was referred to. This is fulfillment right here. He's the one that was referred to by Isaiah, the prophet, when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. This is something that has been occasioned um, and uh, prophesied of all the way back 700 years earlier uh, with Isaiah. John, he was coming with the appearance uh, visually, he, the, the calling and the, the appearance of a prophet. He had the marks of a prophet about him, and the people were listening to him. The people were uh, doing as he was saying to do. And what we see is that then it's a sort of replay, not only from the book of Exodus, not only from the book of, of the, the Kings, but also it's a replay from the book of Joshua where uh, they are pushing the inhabitants out of the Jerusalem, Judea, Israel, promised land territory. The people are being pushed out and then this renewed, uh, freshly redevoted people are being brought in just as Israel would have been brought into the promised land and starting afresh, starting anew. Now, please do notice that there are these tie-ins, okay? One would be in chapter 3, verse 3, where we have the words of a prophet, Isaiah, sort of lining up with what we see in chapter 2, verse 17, in chapter 2, verse 17, remember that what had been spoken was through Jeremiah, the prophet, and it was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah. Okay? And this has to do with Jeremiah, chapter 31, verse 15. We have Ephraim going into exile in Babylon. That's what this quote in chapter 2, verse 18 of Matthew this is tying back in with the exile, do you recall, from Jeremiah, where Ephraim was being pushed out. Ephraim was going into exile in Babylon. And this was to fulfill what the prophet was saying. A voice was heard in Ramah. And in chapter 3, verse 3, the people are going out. Right Now they're going to come back in with this repentance and coming back in, but that's like the exile as well. The exile, the people were pushed out because they were disobedient and they were welcomed back in with repentance. But in chapter 3, verse 3, it begins the same way. Chapter 2.17 says, Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah, 
chapter 3, verse 3 says what was referred to by Isaiah. But what was it that was said in Jeremiah? So we go back to 2.18. It says, a voice. A voice was heard in Ramah. In chapter 3, verse 3, it says, the voice. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. And what we see is that these stories are intended to parallel each other. They're intended to have arrowheads going opposite directions. Uh, but we see that in one case, the trajectory, you remember me talking about drawing this map where we have um, Jerusalem at the center and a big circle representing Israel or Judea. And then we had in the one instance, an arrow pointing from Jerusalem through um, Bethlehem down to Egypt. Then we're going to reverse it. We're going to say from Egypt back up to Jerusalem. But then we see Jesus repelled again and he goes from Jerusalem back up into Galilee to uh, Nazareth where he'd come from, where uh, his folks had come from anyhow. Well, here we have from Jerusalem through Judea out into the wilderness and from the wilderness right back across Jordan back into Judea and Jerusalem. So, in Matthew chapter 2, verse 15, we have the quote from Hosea. Uh, we also have it from uh, the book of um, Numbers as well. Uh, it's, it's also pertinent to the book of Exodus, really. Out of Egypt I called my son. Uh, the way that this quote works. To fulfill prophecy of this new exodus where Jesus actually embodies in a person, he embodies the entirety of the Jewish people, embodies the entirety of the Israelite people. So right here we see in chapter 2 where Jesus is as one man representing fully the entirety of of all of the Israelites. He is sort of redoing. He's, he's calling a do-over here where he's going to Egypt, but then he's going from Egypt and he's coming right back up into um, uh, Jer to Jerusalem. Maybe you will recall the way that the story was told to us. Uh, I have certainly, I've talked about this before with everybody, uh, that the Christmas story was intended to be understood as taking place over a grand total of 40 days. Uh, they found themselves back in uh, Nazareth at the northern extent uh, after 40 days. Not 40 years, uh, 40 uh, after the end of 40 days. The properly it would be Jerusalem because um, Mary was supposed to be back. You got to look at the book of Luke for this, but Mary was supposed to be back in Jerusalem after 40 days at the temple to present the two turtle doves or young pigeons, you recall, uh, for the cleansing described in the book of Numbers, chapter 12. And um, that is there, by the way, I'm just sure for the sake of understanding the Christmas story rightly. 
but we are told that uh, it's an 11-day journey. It's an 11-day journey to go from Egypt, essentially, up to uh, Jerusalem, to Israel anyhow. It's an 11-day journey. It's, it's really not supposed to be... The, it, it's, the geography there is much smaller than the geography in the middle of the United States. The United States is a huge place. Um, the, to go from not the deepest heart of Egypt, no, but from the border of Egypt, in fact, from uh, Mount Sinai, from Horeb by way of Mount Seir, pardon me, from Horeb by way of Mount Seir to Kedesh Barnea uh, takes 11 days. And so what we see Jesus' um, parents, what his folks are doing, is they are doing what it is that Israel should have done in the first place. They're in, e they're in Israel. It only takes them 11 days to get back. It doesn't take them forever to get back. It doesn't take them 40 years to get back. It takes a grand total of 40 days to get to Jerusalem. So uh, that's maybe just an interesting point to, to hold on to as we tell this story. But again, in Matthew chapter 2, I'm, I'm at pains to try to describe this um, fully. I, I'm laboring over this to try to make sure that we are understanding this. As we look at the Christmas story, what we see is a flight from Egypt, a flight from Egypt, Jesus is representing as the king, the king represents the people. This is what headship is about. The king represents the people. And as this specific, unique, particular king, he, Jesus, represents all the people of Israel. All the people of Judah, all the people of Jerusalem, and he is in Egypt in an exile, being pushed out. He then goes back the way that he came into the promised land. And if you'll actually read Hosea, this makes sense of why this quote is where it is. It is not as simple as, out of Egypt I called my son. You need to go back and read the context. It's uh, If you try to read just simply, Jesus went to Egypt and then he came back from Egypt and out of Egypt I called my son. What it's saying is, out of Egypt I called the people of Israel. Jesus is the people of Israel. He is. He's representing all of them. He is the people of Israel. The problem here is, is that people do not, they, they choose to play it safe. They do not follow the true king. They instead wind up following Caesar. They tell Pontius Pilate, we have no king but Caesar. We want to follow Caesar. We don't want to follow this Jesus. And so they try to play it safe and they don't follow Jesus. Jesus will put you at odds and put you in places where you have to make risky obedience choices. So here comes Jesus into the promised land, and now that he's there, 
John the Baptist, the way that the story begins, okay? Continuous story, no stop to the story. We have not gotten to a real break in the action. Yes, there's a transition where now Jesus has come out of Egypt. He's gone to Jerusalem. He's gone to Nazareth. And now what we see is that uh, John the Baptist is coming out into the wilderness and the people are now coming out of Jerusalem, Judea, out into the wilderness, being pushed out again as a recapitulation of the story in the book of Joshua. But now Israel prepared, renewed, repentant, coming back in to Jerusalem, coming back into Judea, coming back into the promised land. John has called and said to the people, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven. Now, in this case, the kingdom of heaven is doing the job of something like a verb. It's actually like a participle. So, what you could say is that uh, the kingdom of heaven is... Another way of saying that is God ruling. Repent, because God ruling is at hand. God ruling is at hand. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. God ruling is at hand. That's why you should repent, because Jesus has landed, and he's getting ready to emerge, and John the Baptist is going to baptize him. Not because he's a sinner in need of repenting and starting over that way, but because this is an initiating move. We will talk about that, I'm sure, at another time. But repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And here's what I want to say about that in closing. John the Baptist comes saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Do you know what Jesus comes saying? Jesus, in chapter 4, verse 17, when he starts his preaching ministry, chapter 4, verse 17, from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Not very original, is he? He's repeating what John the Baptist said. You don't have to be original. Just say what is being said. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And you know, this isn't the only one who says this. There are others who say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Peter, if you go to Acts chapter 2, Peter, Acts chapter 2, what does Peter say to the people? Peter, after he has been filled with the Holy Spirit, he, in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Peter said to them, the people of Israel in Jerusalem, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ because of the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So, again, 
repent. Repent. It's good enough for John the Baptist to tell us. It's good enough for Jesus to tell us. It's good enough for Peter to tell us. And actually, if you go further into uh, the book of Acts, the funny thing about that is, is that we also see Paul. Paul saying, repent, repent. It is not a new message that I give to you. But while people are in the mood to do their New Year's resolutions and whatnot, I would say don't concern yourself with New Year's resolutions. Now, do you need to eat well? Sure. Do you need to exercise? Yeah, probably. Do you need to concern yourself with new uh, habits, uh, maybe even uh, Bible reading and intake? Absolutely. Those are excellent examples of having a change of mind and resetting up your agenda and doing things practically differently. Putting things into practice and doing things differently. That's what John the Baptist was telling people. It's what Jesus was telling people. It's what Peter was telling people. It's what Paul was telling people. Repent. Have a change of mind. View things differently. Look at things through a different lens. Okay? Set up your life differently. You have had an agenda that goes this way. Now, have a change of mind and instead live your life with an agenda that goes this way. Well, how do I set that up? By following the Lord. Do not try to play it safe. Do not go for the, uh, the proper income with the white picket fence and the American dream and the two automobiles and the 2.4 children and the, the American dream is empty. All right? Chase Christ with all you have. Intentionally set out. I'm calling on you to repent. Trust the Lord. Either be saved or rededicate your life to Jesus and follow Him with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Change your mind. Get your priorities straight. Recognize the Lordship of Jesus. Join into this covenant. Receive forgiveness for your sins and follow the way of Jesus. Pick up your cross and bear it daily, knowing that this is not a your best life now movement. It may very well set you at odds with some people, but it's certainly going to be worth it because Jesus is worthy. Repentance and following Jesus? Aha! This is well-placed faith.